This is an ABC podcast. It was the bank relied on by much of the tech industry. So what does it mean for all those apps and startups and businesses if they can't get their cash out? Yes, this week on Download This Show, inside the implosion of Silicon Valley Bank. Plus, TikTok goes all parent on us and decides to limit access to the social media service for one hour for teenagers. But are time limits really the best way to manage our relationship with technology? And who needs a real radio presenter when you can have an artificial intelligence DJ? I will let you draw your own conclusions on that one in about half an hour's time. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guests this week joining us from Girl Geek Academy and also the head of engagement at the Electric Vehicle Council, Sarah Moran. Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me back. And right here in studio we have from Smart Company and the Queens of the Drone Age podcast, Stegan Jones. Welcome back. Thank you for having me back. All right, we're going to start with the app that just seems to constantly bring drama to this show. It's what I love about social networking and video platform TikTok. It's talking about limiting... Access to teenagers, Tegan, what are they talking about doing? Yeah, so essentially it's trying to bring in screen time specifically for TikTok where it will limit teens by default to one hour per day. But of course you can opt out of this and also I think that it'll really depend on parental controls on how successful this is. Sarah Moran, how much time do you reckon you spend on things like TikTok? Oh my goodness, you're going to start me with my secret shame. Hours. I don't turn it off. Like I I am a power user of TikTok. I'm coming out. I'm going to admit it. I love this platform. I, I have the setting restrictions, so the timer restrictions that, that stop me and I enter that little passcode <laughs> on a regular basis to say <laughs> no. I want more. <laughs> so for me, yeah, um, I find this a very interesting approach by TikTok to time limit this stuff for young people. And I think it's important. I think it's getting a lot of support. But I also ha- have a little theory about why TikTok are moving towards this, Mark. Oh, go on. We can talk <laughs> about the, the logic of it later, but let's go with conspiracy theory first. <laughs> Okay, so when Be Real came out, the the thing that was fascinating about it was that you could only post once a day and you had to do it within the time limit and that it was this really restrictive thing. So, you know, it really made you focus and you had to think about what you were doing. And I think there is something about, you know, the dynamics of young people. I, I have not been a young person for a while now, but there is something about the trends that shift between, you know, access to everything and then taking it all away again that makes something exclusive. And so if you think about limiting the amount of time teenagers can spend on an app. Do they want it more? Yes, they do. And I, you know, my conspiracy theory is, is that this is actually an engagement tactic for young people (laughs) to say that I'm serious. I mean, I I, I will call it a conspiracy theory if you will, but I really think that this is about engagement because if you can have open access to TikTok, I know from experience, (laughs) it gets boring after a while. So, you know, after the fourth or fifth hour of the day, you kind of get over it. And so I think there is something about that exclusivity that TikTok might be trying to tap into here. I should mention that Be Real is that very unusual app that came out a couple of months ago where it it would sort of trigger you at a certain point in the day where you had to take a photo of what was in the front of your camera and behind your camera. And I think the whole shtick was... um, it was incredibly banal. We can't see Sarah because she's not in the studio right now, but I'm assuming she's got a tinfoil hat on. Sure. Uh, what do you make of Sarah's <laughs> conspiracy theory? Well, first I have to ask Sarah, is TikTok in the room with you right now? 
<laughs> always. It's always on me. Yeah. In our um, hearts forever. Um, look, I like the conspiracy theory. Um, I think that TikTok is very good at marketing and very good at engagement. So I think that it could hold water. But I also think that because it is so, so easy to simply ignore that prompt or put in your code, whatever it is, that it might just turn into that whole thing that I do all of the time, which is, you know, I try and be very studious and I set myself screen time limits for all of my social media apps. And then I promptly ignore it just for that little bit of empty kind of dopamine hit that I get from social media. So I think that people are definitely going to ignore this. The concept of screen time, like, and, and we made the reference to like, you know, parents will often kind of invoke screen time with their kids. And there's been a fair amount of debate about whether the way we should be managing our relationship with technology from a very young age up to adults should be measured in time, but more like really understanding our sort of psychological engagement with it, which is like, do I need this for the dopamine hit, as you say before? I guess my concern with it is it, I don't think it deals with the root of the issue, right? Where I think... You know, we we probably all spend too much time online and various different apps, but I think if you're just controlling it for time, even just with what you described there, Tegan, you're still looking for the dopamine hit, right? And I think that's the thing you want to address, right? Do you think time limits, Sarah, will actually navigate that or, or ameliorate that in any way, shape or form? Well, what I find interesting about time limits is that that definitely came in for the iPad generation. That was something that they were raised on um, is that, oh, no, no, it's okay because I've got a time limit. We limit our screen time in our house. I think a lot about generations of young people and Musical.ly, which was you know, TikTok's former inter- iteration, came out in 2016. And, you know, what are we? We're sort of seven years in. We're looking at that new generation coming in. And I actually wonder if this is targeting that cohort. So that that cohort that has grown up with screen time in the house, they're growing out of primary school, coming into high school, it's keeping up the norms and the social acceptance of that family, you know, and how they deal with the engagement. I think you're right about um, the empty nature or, you know, what is the quality of screen time is something that's definitely looked at. But it's something that I learnt teaching kids coding. And this is definitely something that we're seeing is that I will talk to parents like, oh, it's okay for the kids to use the tablet when they're coding. And that's a very different engagement to scrolling through and just watching videos. And I wonder if there is that generational shift that's coming through to say, well, okay, well, we'll we'll carry that through as you're a teenager. Screen time is something that as a family, this is how we use it. Do you think it might change behaviour long term if if you've got a generation of TikTok users who are used to the idea, well, I've only got an hour a day on this thing? Do you think it'll change the way they behave with, with the internet more generally? I mean, potentially, but also you can just go and turn it off. That's what I would probably do. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like it's a hard limit that's set. Like, you know what? You simply cannot use this anymore until you're over 18. That's not in place unless they've got parents that are really strict at enforcing it. So, I mean, maybe it remains to be seen, but... I mean, teens are going to teen, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I think this is the most basic form of rebellion would be simply watching more screen for longer. Yeah, you don't need to be a teenager to do that. Uh, my kids probably listen to this going, I do that already. <laughs> um, Sarah, the, this comes at an interesting time for TikTok, right? TikTok's obviously facing a lot of headlines around the world. We've got government departments around the world saying that it should be taken off government devices. There's a lot of attention on its privacy, what it does with its data. How much of this is about do you think a genuine engagement with what's best for young people and the internet and how much of it is about waving a big flag going, look, we have, we're, we're a responsible technology company. We, we care about things. 
I mean, this goes on the For You page of every government, right? It's like, this is our policy for e-safety and how we're protecting our young people. So it sounds great. And that's, you know, when the rubber hits the road, as you say, you can just override it. It's really not a big deal. But I think you're right in that it really is that sort of big PR piece to say, no, we care about young people and, you know, th- th- this is what we're going to do to, to support their health. But whether or not that actually sticks, I think, I think is a, a totally different thing. But back to the generational kind of shift that we're seeing, TikTok have all the data. We know that. They're very good at that. And I just really question what is the data telling them that a 60-minute time limit is in their interest to implement. I think, you know, why 60 minutes? Why, why all of these other things? And I do wonder whether, you know, are teenagers creating less content than they have over the past period of time? Uh, now that we're coming out of the, you know, emerging out of the pandemic, we're not all sitting around at home. Is there actually only 60 minutes a day worth watching on TikTok? I, I hope that's true because my own usage might drop as well and I can get my <laughs> life back. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that, like, if we're going with, like, hardcore conspiracy theories as to why TikTok's doing this, it, there's an interesting sort of thing buried within the announcement that uh, the way that it'll be managed is through family pairing. So a, f- a parent account will have control over a kid account. To me, that just sounds like double the users. Hmm. It's like, in order for this to work, you as a parent need an account and that's another potential lead as well. That's right. I'm putting on the foil hat now. Hit me, it's taken. Do you buy it or not? I actually love that. I do agree with that. And that would make so much more sense to me than simply we're trying to look after the kids. <laughs> so cynical, <laughs> Tegan. Yes. <laughs> uh, download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. Our guest this week from Smart Company and the Queens of the Drone Age podcast, Tegan Jones, and from Girl Geek Academy and the head of engagement at the Electric Vehicle Council, Sarah Moran. It is, quite frankly, the biggest and, according to some, most disastrous turn of events in the history of technology. Tegan, how has the failing of one bank become such a big news story? Tell me the story of Silicon Valley Bank. This is also the story of my last sort of 48 hours, Mark. So this story basically goes back to the global financial crisis. So we're going to set a bit of a scene here where after that all happened, interest rates were really low, which led to a really big boom in the venture capital space. So you had a lot of hot young startups opening accounts, not needing as many loans, which we know that banks love. And so to make a bit of extra cash, we had SVB and a couple of other banks investing government securities and bonds basically to yeah, have some more money. But as we've seen, especially over the last six months, interest rates have risen dramatically. And this created a couple of problems for the bank. So firstly, its securities were worthless now, but they had to sell them to try and get a bit of cash. And it also meant that venture capitalists weren't throwing around as much cash into these startups. And so these startups were taking money out. And so we fast forward to last week and a couple of things happened. Silvergate Capital, which is another banking institution that is really heavy in the crypto space, they collapsed. And then SVB sold $21 billion of those bonds at a loss and also announced the plan to share $2.2 billion in shares. Now, all of these are in US dollars. And it was disclosed publicly and people panicked. So a bunch of these small businesses and startups started pulling their money out of SVB, which turned into what they call a bank run. And what we had was regulators then having to step in to close the bank. 
So why is SVB important? I mean, beyond the fact that it has Silicon Valley in the title, why is it important to, to the tech industry? What sort of things does it do for them? Well, because it specializes specifically in startups, it's located, as we say, in Silicon Valley. It's there in the name and all of these really big companies, small but big companies that have come up over the last 10 years, that startup space has really boomed. It kind of is specializing in that tech sector. So when you have a bunch of money that is now potentially locked up and people not being able to access it, that is a huge problem. So what does this mean for tech startups that, you know, often rely on banks like SVB, particularly in those early days? What does it mean for them, Sarah? I think I just wanted to add quickly that Silicon Valley Bank became the largest issuer of venture debt and it had about $6.7 billion in loans um, to early and mid-stage private companies last year. And so venture debt, they really led the way in what that is and it was a different type of financing for startups. So where traditionally with startups you would go to venture capitalists and say, hey, your money, may I have it please? People were able to instead ask the bank for their money against their startups and it was heralded as this great new approach but because they were so big in it that that has had an effect on different types of startups as well. And I, I think that that's something that um, a lot of us as Australians don't know because venture debt is not something that we really do here. So it's not something that we're very familiar with. So the knock-on effects, uh, you know, it's not just the big venture capital companies and all of their portfolios, but individuals who have taken loans against the bank have been severely affected. So if you're a um, sort of a mid-level startup that has taken on debt from SVB right now, what happens to you, Sarah? We are in the throes of figuring this out at the moment because if you have money deposited with the bank, it is guaranteed up to $250,000. There was actually crisis talks that have been happening over Zoom calls with the government and they have said that they will guarantee all depositors. You know, in terms of venture debt, what that becomes very complicated and I think that that is still being figured out literally as we speak. The good thing there too, which a lot of those startups were worried about over the weekend was, okay, I have way more than that $250,000 in there. What's going to happen? But the US Treasury did come out and say that any depositors will be okay. And that also goes for Signature Bank, I believe, in New York that also collapsed overnight. But Sarah is still right. Even despite that, there's investors, there's a lot more going on over there that we're not sure what's going to happen. And even by the time this episode comes out, there might be more news. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure there will be. So in the, in that instance, Tegan, if, if you're somebody who's taken out a loan from SVB for your startup, are you looking at this going, yeah, I'm just not paying? <laughs> like how are people reacting to the idea of a bank that, that you know, has obviously given them a lot of money in, in, in a debt context at the beginning? Are there people sitting down there going, well, why would I pay into that? Like how are different companies reacting? I think everyone's kind of sitting there at the moment like, I, I don't know, what do you do? Because obviously we've had the regulars come in and all of the accounts have been moved to sort of a separate institution, but this is only a few days old. Um, people are still trying to figure out what's going to happen. We've had a little bit of commentary out of the US federal uh, government, but how are different governments, because this affects startups all around the world, Sarah, how are different governments responding to this? My Australian last startup Slack channels have been going a little bit nuts <laughs> over... So HSBC has actually bought Silicon Valley Bank UK for one pound. And so, Good deal. Good yeah, deal. Great deal. Why didn't I get that deal? I don't know that I wanted it. No, but, you don't um, want that deal. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how much do the, I mean, there's a whole bunch of debt I assume that comes with that. Yeah, and I, th I think that's, you know, definitely how things are washing up. So the timeline my Slack channels are telling me uh, is that they're predicting actually everything will be sorted in terms of what's going to happen over the long term by the end of this week. So everyone is moving 
very quickly, you know, whether or not it, it plays out by the end of the week. But the bulk of the unsuredness that we're currently in, um, it's being resolved very, very quickly. And we're seeing these large movers like HSBC going, right, all right, I can afford to take on this issue. I'll get in there and sort it out. Whether or not that's a smart move for them is, is yet to be seen. For the longest time, tech companies have needed enormous amounts of either investment, venture capital, or in this case, debt. Are there lessons that the next generation of tech companies should be taking away from this, Tegan? Part of it, and one of the questions that's still being asked now is, should there still be concern over banks like SVB that have quite a lot of exposure to crypto? Um, That's been super interesting to me. So I think that's going to be a remaining question and whether that will impact um, how people will, I guess, approach... For you, Sarah, what do you think the lessons that are going to be taken away from from this drama are going to be for tech companies? Well, for me, it's been the real-time nature of knowing what's going on. You know, this morning, of all things, a TikTok showed me from a representative in the US government that they had had this Zoom call. He got off the Zoom call, he posted it to TikTok and said, here's what we just talked about. Was that 2AM guy? Because yes, I got him too. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. Who, is 2AM guy actually what he's called? No, I just he, he made a point. He's like, it's 2AM here. Like, he made a big deal out of it. He was like, some... Some representative from somewhere. It was nobody that I knew, but he was very concise, Sarah, right? He was good. <laughs> he was he nailed the TikTok uh, TikTok <laughs> communication strategy. But I think that's the thing, right? The interesting part of this for me is that social media is feeding us all of this information in real time about what's going on. So on Slack, I had a group of people who were both from VCs in Australia, local startup founders, and I heard from a very prominent fintech representative. So he's a founder of a financial technology company in Australia, and he was the one saying, you know, this is what's happening in the UK. He's obviously a subject matter expert in financial technology, and being able to share that with founders and and those of us who are less into financial technology but into technology more broadly was really helpful in understanding what was going on and what we should do about it. Where that becomes a consequence is that I'm in the know, but, you know, for those of you listening at home, you're probably not on my Slack channel. So I have a, you know, much quicker advantage in being able to take action. And I think that's a lesson to be learnt is where does your information come from and how quickly do you get it sort of shores up your position in how you will be exposed to these things. So in the US, there's a bit of criticism circulating at the moment. One of the top financial investors, Peter Thiel, when I think of how I would describe him, to to me, he's Lex Luthor, but that's definitely a personal opinion. Um, he had advised his... He's, uh, he's po- controversial. Yes. He's controversial yeah, yeah. in many ways, but basically, you know, he advised his portfolio companies, quick, go, get your money out now. And that's arguably what triggered some of the run that was happening on the banks, but it happened so quickly because news sped, spread over social media. Yeah, and there were some other uh, venture capital firms that did the same thing at the same time, so I fully agree with that sentiment. If you have a few powerful investors that tell people, get out now, all you need is a handful to trigger essentially a run on the bank where suddenly everybody's pulling their money out. Yeah, and it was like, I believe, tens of billions that got pulled out within a 24-hour period too, so it, the consequences were huge. This is another one of those implications of having an always-on approach to, to finances means that if information now can move at an incredible speed in discrete Slack channels with a handful of people that have, you know, commanded enormous amount of influence, 
things can fall off a cliff very, very fast. And I guess that's not going to change, is it, Tegan? Like, this is the future of how finance markets are going to work. Absolutely. And it's not even just how fast the information spreads, it's how fast you can react. Back in the day, obviously not 2008, similar thing, you can pull your money out of places, but back in the day, you had to go down to the bank to withdraw your money. Now you can just do it online really quickly to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. And the next day that bank is gone. Do you think it will change behavior though? Like the fact that things move super fast, what do you think the impact that's going to be, Sarah? And do people become more gun shy with their investment choices or do they become a little bit more agile? I think it's it's so hard to tell what the wash up will be. For me, I, I I keep my money in multiple places, but that's because I'm disorganized. You know, I, I don't know what the smart people in the room uh, would would tell you would be the advice coming out of this on the other side. But I think it definitely makes people think a lot harder, and and particularly, I think the impact will be seen on Australian startups that a lot of them are probably very thankful that their money is not in American banks. How far do you think governments should go to to bail out institutions like SVB? I think that when it comes to protecting depositors' money, I'm all for it. Um, We saw that, you know, like we said earlier, in the wake of the GFC, that lack of protection and trust birthed crypto quite literally. Mm. Um, And so the way that I kind of see it too, getting back to that idea of the investments, is that I think that people these days in particular do not want the risk, but only the reward of investments. And we certainly, and and so I'm kind of okay with governments not bailing people out because an investment is supposed to be risky. And we're seeing this even just in the housing market in Australia right now. We've got a bunch of landlords that are jacking up rents massively for people for the mold infested places, basically passing on their risk to tenants rather than assessing their own risk before they buy a property. So, and I think it's a similar thing that if you're going to take that risk, you have to be prepared for the outcomes. All right. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And if you happen to use the music streaming service Spotify, you may have opened it up in the last couple of days and gone, oh, you look a little bit different. Spotify basically has redesigned to look a lot like the the video sharing service TikTok. An awful lot uh, like it. And it's using that hot button word of the moment, which is artificial intelligence. That's two words. Or we could go with the acronym AI. Uh, It's the Web3 of 2023. Basically, it's bringing AI to serve you a more TikTok-like experience where uh, it will suggest, say, songs or artists, but with your visuals behind it so it is more engaging. Um, it has dabbled in this before. We've seen, you know, you might get a radio station that is kind of made for you uh, based off your music preferences, making it look a little bit more like TikTok. Sarah, I want to talk to you about uh, one of the features here. They have introduced an AI DJ and mm. I just... Disturbing. <laughs> I've listened Cursed. to a few clips of it and I was just like... Have these people heard radio before? <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because I did the same thing. So I went to YouTube and I was like, okay, let's see how this DJ plays up. Apart from the fact his accent, I'm like, where did that come from? Apparently the the gentleman who is the DJ, <laughs> uh, his name's Xavier, and so they call the DJ X. No. Nope. I'm like, oh, no. like X-Men. Shut it down. Uh, <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly that I don't think that the people who created this have ever actually heard a radio DJ before because, (laughs) you know, some of the introductions were like, 
Hey, now, and so for what's trending, I thought I'd play you this song that is popular in your country. Mm. And it's this. And I'm like, why Why say that? That's not how a DJ talks. That's not what a DJ does. No, we want um, Richard Mercer, love song dedication to <laughs> melodic tones in my ears. <laughs> I guess one day AI will surmount, and maybe that day is closer than I think, which is that we sit in a car or we sit in, you know, with their phone open and you make a choice. Like, I want to listen to classic songs or I want to listen to new music on like a Triple J or like a Nova or something. One of the things I think Spotify does quite well is it actually presents me with some agency in that. It's like, do you want to listen to your indie mix or your rock mix or your dance mix or da, da, da. When you introduce a concept like AI, firstly, I don't necessarily want to listen to a dude voice or a female voice. Do I want to listen to somebody that sounds like Love Song Dedications or do I want to listen to sound like like a breakfast show? It doesn't necessarily have the capacity to give you that agency and that choice, which I still think is an important part of any kind of media consumption, right? You can't just have everything delivered to you that you think you want because sometimes you actually want the choice in that mix. I agree with that. I kind of like the concept of being delivered things that it thinks that I will like because otherwise I quite literally will just get stuck in my 700 song deep chaos playlist that is mostly just stuff I've been listening to for the past 25 years and random songs that don't make sense that I hear sometimes. Yeah. It's a very dark place, Mark, but I want to like get on new music and I want to learn about new podcasts, but I don't need some person named X telling me irrelevant information to do that. What do you think, Sarah? I'm not a Spotify user and a big part of it was I put in the the hours of scanning in my CDs to Apple Match years ago and then Apple Match, <sighs> like, I think I didn't pay the renewal for the subscription and I lost all of my music. <gasps> and so I just went, well, I give up. I have given up on the admin required for maintaining, <laughs> you know, libraries and whatnot. And so I, I'm a YouTube music user. Oh, my God. <laughs> You're the one? I'm probably the only one, but, you know, that, that is my approach. Wait, wait, wait. So how does that work? You you have the YouTube... Because I know it's a subscription you can get, but, like, when you open up YouTube... Does it play the video? Is that just video just playing in your pocket while you're walking down the street? Is that how that works? So um, it's a separate app. It's a standalone app that you can get on your phone. And it um, it does just sort of remix your own, you know, it says, oh, you you roughly like these things. You can choose different radio stations. I don't pay for it because uh, I don't even pay for YouTube Red. Um, so if I get out of the app, it stops. Like, it's a terrible experience. <laughs> but I'm I'm fine with it, right? Like, I, as I said, I did the admin 10 years ago and I, I, I lost it. Um, and so so for me, um, I get a little bit of that remix in there and, and I'm fine with that. But I think what I've worked out is I'm like, okay, so if I had been paying for subscription music over the last, you know, 10, 15 years to listen to those same 700 songs that Tegan listens to, I would not be ahead right now. I, you know, like I, I think about how we used to pay $30 for an album and we would listen to it. Um, and so so for me, I am in a similar boat that I want to experience new music and I do want that surface to me, but I'm going to be a bit generous. I would say that Spotify's AI DJ is in like version 1.0. It's, it's known to be beta and I think... What would be really good is if there was the feedback loop that would allow me to have that input over the time so that Spotify's AI DJ would get to know me better. I like that you're like Equal Park's magnanimous and deeply chaotic (laughs) with your choices. I just keep them 
Jessen, you know, AI will never, AI will never top me. And so being able to have that feedback loop that I can improve on things over time, that would actually see me switch to Spotify and, and um, hand up some money if I could find a great way to discover new music. And over the last couple of years, I just haven't been able to find that on any platform. If you went over to Spotify, would you feel more comfortable with that if it just, you know, stopped working when you exited it out of the app? That kind of thing make you feel a bit more comfortable <laughs> and familiar? I just want to have a Spotify wrapped. They don't have that on YouTube music. <laughs> well, you know where you can go. Yeah. X is waiting for you. <laughs> you can stay there. Uh, with that strange, strange take <laughs> on how to interact with music on the internet. I'm just, it's going to take me a couple of hours to kind of process the elaborate way you work out uh, your music taste, Sarah. <laughs> but uh, with that, we are indeed out of time. Huge thank you to our guest this week, the confounding music choices of Sarah Moran from Girl Geek Academy and Head of Engagement at Electric Vehicle Council. Thanks so much for sharing your nonsense. I mean, they, no, I'm kidding. They, thanks very much for coming back on Download the Show. Anytime. <laughs> and Tegan Jones from Smart Company and the excellent Queens of the Drone Age podcast, which you should totally listen to as soon as this is done. Thanks for coming back on Download the Show. My name is a very confused Mark Fennell. I'll be back next week. Until then. We won't. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to another episode of Download the You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.